We'll look uh, in a little bit at Psalms 40, which this uh, quotation has come from. But <clears throat> I want to do a thought here. In chapter 9, we are beginning a typological reading of the two covenants and the two temples. And this is continuing in chapter 10. In the Mosaic Law, or in the, the temple, they're a, sh they're a shadow of the true form. He says that it's come in Christ. And what we've talked about is we want to resist the notion of a Platonic reading, which would be, uh, you know, to project these things in some sort of heavenly archetype or form. On the other hand, uh, we there it may be a problem to read it strictly as an earthly event. That it's you know we've talked about the temple as a kind of as a microcosmos. And so there's a tension here between the relationship between the, the heavenly and the earthly tabernacle. And uh, as we're beginning to describe this relationship, what I will claim and want to just work out tonight is that if we can work out this relationship, we're actually working out the relationship between God and the cosmos. The temple as microcosmos certainly makes God imminent, but this is intention in tension with God's dwelling place in the heaven and his transcendence. The solution, for those of you who may leave early, uh, is to emphasize, in other words, let's not say one's wrong or one's right, but actually what's happening in portions of scripture is that both things are emphasized. And I think we should create a tension. There should be. There was a tension for Jews uh, in their various readings of this. Uh, but I think the rec to recognize the Trinitarian nature of God, that God in the uh, Father is transcendent and in the Son is imminent, so that actually if we get our temple uh, theology right, this is a good way to talk about our understanding of who God is. So... The other thing that I'd like to just touch upon that we've talked about, but I think this solves or addresses the problem, and that is we've been talking about where does atonement take place. Uh, and I've said that too strong of an emphasis on the death of Christ may seem to make the atonement. In other words, what happens, people talk about the death of Christ, and they picture this as happening in a purely spiritual realm. Uh, and this, you know, leaves out the notion of the temple as microcosmos, as the picture of a, an imminent uh, ordering of the world. Uh, on the other hand, to miss the incarnation and death of Christ as, you know, part of his ministry is going to miss the significance of his embodied, embodied heavenly priesthood. So I'm saying this tension between the temples, the two understandings, is actually going to help us resolve this discussion of the atonement. Um, there is in the idea that uh, the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities. Uh, and he's going to talk about that until the perfect has come, and this perfection is on the basis that you know, we can enter into the Holy of Holies, we can enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus with our hearts, and this is, we're not there yet, but we'll talk about it next week, 
with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies voiced with pure water. What I've said is we need both ideas. We need the picture of uh, uh, the transcendence of Christ, that is Christ literally ascending, to address the deep human consciousness. Um, the way that this is actually a, a project that N.T. Wright has undertaken, and that is that he suggests that if we could almost do uh, a temple, understand Christ as a temple substitute, as an alternative way of doing Christology. Uh, that is, that uh, he says that it is basic to New Testament Christology that the human Jesus discloses in himself the being and nature of the true true God. But he does this in conjunction with the idea of Christ as temple substitute. And so he, he uh, the picture is, you know, in this, in this chapter, you have prepared a body for me. And so Yahweh is expected to return to the temple, and Jesus is, uh, is said to be a substitute for the temple. So what might it, this is, this is right, what might it do to our systematic Christologies to make the temple, rather than theories about nature's persons and substance, central to our re reflection? So I'm going to try this tonight. I'm going to say, okay, let's work out uh, the Trinitarian nature of God. Um, referring here to Richard Berry, he says that the once-for-all presence of the Son in the Holy of Holies is in fact the eternal truth of the relationship of mutual indwelling between Father and Son. That's A. B, that the enfleshed reality of this eternal drawing near is most perfectly embodied at Calvary. Uh, the thing that uh, Barry does in, this is his dissertation, is to say that Abraham offering Isaac on Mount Moriah is at the heart of the what is happening in the temple sacrifices. That is, what that meant was that here is Isaac, a life truly dedicated to God, and uh, that uh, the temple in, in, in is carrying that on. And of course, Abraham and Isaac are pointing ultimately to Christ. So the ancient, and the third thing, the ancient symbol of blood as life uh, is, Barry going to says, it finds its expression in that moment, meaning the moment of the death of Christ. So in his obedience unto death, and that's the picture in, in Hebrews, Christ lives our perfect love, that is, here is the kenotic love of Philippians. Uh, carried out. What we're to do is imitate Christ. Christ is our model. Uh, he's the full reality of the you know Abraham offering Isaac, but it takes place. The significance we've talked about that it takes place in heaven is to say that this heavenly uh, re reality then is made available that heaven and earth are brought together in Christ. So maybe we could say that the, it is a moment, the death of Christ is an, a moment with an enduring possibility due to the resurrection and ascension. Let me say what I said just there. I, I may have lost you. 
there is a tension. I've been reading, I've been arguing in, in favor of a guy named Moffat who, who is saying that we should not focus simply on the death of Christ to find the atonement. He's saying the de- to focus on the death and it in some ways it is spiritualized. If we focus on the, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, what takes place then is a more literal understanding that Christ has accomplished. He is the great high priest because in the Holy of Holies, his life is the indestructible human life that is mediated to us. So the tension between these two things is between where do we focus, where, where does the atonement, uh, where is it worked out? And actually the, the early church was split over this issue. The Eastern Orthodox Church is going to say that the atonement is, in fact they don't use the language of atonement uh, to describe this, they'll use the language of theosis. It is the life, death, resurrection. It's the full course of the life of Jesus. In the Western church, we've tended to emphasize the death of Christ. And what I'm offering here, I'm, what I'm trying to work out, is this tension between, between the two things. In talking about the two temples, and in talking about the two temples, we're actually talking about the nature of God. So as the early Jews developed the notion that the temple is a microcosm, they wrestled with the question of God's imminence the mystery of God in creation. Similarly, as early Jews reflected on the idea that the earthly temple reflects God's heavenly temple, they pondered the question of God's transcendence, the mystery of God beyond creation. The way that uh, Barry puts this, climbing Mount Zion from opposing banks, the temple themes of God in creation and God beyond creation will find each other at the peak, producing the formula, God beyond and in creation. And this is ultimately a Christological affirmation. But it is anticipated, he's saying, in the temple. In other words, this language, there's two different kinds of picture, in the, especially around Deuteronomy, and uh, you know, around the, the, the picture elsewhere of the temple. This is, we've worked this out, I've referenced this a little bit, but let me tell you a little of this. I think it's inherently interesting that it really is only around 1976 that a guy named uh, Joseph Blankensop, he, he, he comes to these formulas in what are called the priestly texts, and he finds three key moments in the narrative. The creation of the world, the consecration of the tabernacle at Sinai, which people are going to say, oh, there's the, the completion of the creation, and then the installation of the tabernacle in the land promised uh, to Israel. And so what he is saying is that in, you know, we find this in the Sabbath language that we talked about. On the seventh day he rested, but you find that same climax of being finished of creation the seventh day in the temple dedication ceremonies. Another guy named Moshe Weinfield, uh, 
he actually his paper appeared in Hebrew and but he observed that the priestly account of God's creation in Genesis and the story of the building of God's sanctuary in Exodus both end in the same way with a theology of the Sabbath and so we've talked about that that in the writer of Hebrews we're only going to make sense of entering the Sabbath, entering the rest of God, if we understand that this is where heaven and earth, God's transcendence and God's imminence are brought together. Um, Their end point, he says, is the same. Yahweh and Israel at rest in his sacred precincts. What we're saying here is that creation's purpose is to be a temple for God that the cosmos is not something to be shuffled aside, you know, burnt up, and we all leave the earth and fly, I'll fly away, you know, in my soul. But the, the purposes of the cosmos reflected in the microcosmos of the temple are then fulfilled when the temple, the cosmos, is made a fit dwelling place for God. So when Christ comes to the temple and he's, you know, in John... Pictured, uh, pictured as recreating, what is he recreating? Is he just, Well, he's recreating everything. That all things, and that's the language, in the beginning, he's reflecting Genesis and he's redoing. The picture is he's reordering the cosmos. Peter J. Kearney that same year, notice there are seven speeches in Exodus and you know, he, he relates it the six the first six speeches give instructions about the tabernacle, which he says parallel the days of creation. And he goes through the days of creation, you know, the lampstand, the light of the in darkness, the laver of bronze, you know, the, the call it's literally called the sea, is the separation of the dry land and the sea. The sixth is the the creation of human beings which uh, he finds reflected uh, in in the the, se- the sixth speech, and then obviously the seventh. And so, the conclusion of all this is that it's regularly argued that within theology, that the work of creation is not properly complete until the tabernacle is erected and God's glory dwells with His people. There's one difference, though, between, and I'm not even sure this is a difference, between the story of creation and the tabernacle. And that is, in the tabernacle and the temple, God invites people, he invites humans to partake in the work of establishing and ordering the cosmos. Maybe that's already there in you know, in Adam, but it's certainly, in other words, the idea in the temple is that Human beings are participants in the work of the tabernacle in which the picture, if we are correct in seeing the tabernacle as a microcosmos, is that everything is being reordered. So if you look at Exodus, you know, uh, and Genesis, Genesis, you know, there's the command, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water, and God made the expanse. But now in Exodus, the execution of the expanse the, is carried out by human beings. We're invited to respond to God's word with, here's Jake, where's Jake, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
and to build the sanctuary where God will dwell. And all of this, you know, be thinking forward to our participation in the true temple, which is Christ. And so in this, we recapitulate the divine work, but we become the participants in establishing order. So the work, the concern of creation is not creation ex nihilo so much. You know, this is what John Walton has done with his book on, you know, the lost world of Genesis. But it's the establishment of a benevolent and life-sustaining order founded upon the authority of God who brings chaos under control, who orders things. Uh, and maybe we can go beyond that. It's not simply in, in, uh, it's not simply in building a structure but it's in the sacrifices. This is Gary Anderson said, the, the lighting of the sacrificial pyre, or in other words, with the inauguration of the, the tamid sacrifice, the morning and evening burnt offerings. He says, when the daily sacrifices began, the goal of creation would be consummated. What was the purpose of the sacrifices? To cleanse the temple. To cleanse the temple of what? of the chaos of death. In other words, we've talked about this. We went through all the rituals surrounding the temple. There was one thing that was unclean, both you know, in terms of ritual and also in terms of morals. Death or sin and death. And so what's tied together here is creation, redemption, uh, are all then tied together, and of course this will be worked out, not simply in the person and work of Christ. Remember, when we say that Jesus is the temple, the writer of Hebrews has already said, but you are the temple, we are the temple. And so when we say Christ's body, you know, he says, the body you have prepared for me, ultimately we are that body. The divine presence which is enjoyed at the tabernacle and which corresponds to the cosmic order and the burnt offerings that would open and close each day. And it is the concept of cosmic order, but all of this is pointing back to Abraham. We think that Moriah and the Temple Mount may be the same place. And of course, Abraham is pointing forward to Christ. There, in Christ, the idea of here is a life truly dedicated to God, uh, an enduring, you know, why is Christ qualified as high priest? Because he, he has an enduring life, a resurrection life. But it's a self-giving love that begins at the cross. I don't want to underemphasize the cross. That's what I'm getting at here. Um, John and I just did a podcast. You'll all be so excited to, to hear uh, you, uh, Rene Girard has a understanding of sin. I don't need to run that down for you now, but it, the idea is that, you know, that uh, in scapegoating, that uh, this is the ordering of myth of societies. This is the ordering that you find in myth. And what he's saying is that uh, Christ exposes that scapegoating me- mechanism. He discro- discloses or or uh, mimetic desire. Mimetic desire is what, you know, the desire that we imitate from others. 
which always ends up in violence. If two people desire the same thing, they've got problems, right? But is it, you know, we can use Gerard or we can talk about the cross of Christ as defeating sin and death, but is that the only thing that has happened? Is it simply that Christ defeats evil and the story ends there? Or is it fact that ultimately uh, what is given to us is the purpose of creation itself, the fulfillment of being true human beings, this positive idea of dwelling in the presence of God and the cosmos being redeemed, that we're remaking creation. That, I think, puts a, a very different and a positive emphasis on what we're doing as Christians, right? We're co-participants with uh, God in ordering creation. And it's through the body of Christ, the church, that that ordering is taking place. So if triumph over chaos is commemorated in the temple, in the microcosm, then it must be a triumph that works itself out through the self-giving posture found in the sacrifices, but ultimately in the sacrifice of Christ, and in our own taking up the cross and following Christ. Um, So we can link three things. The theology of Abraham and Isaac, you know, the, uh, and then the theology of Mount Zion that co- uh, culminates in the recreation of Christ. Um, now, I've said all that, but we didn't, you know, the, the, the temple is a microcosmos. The other thing is the temple is a mirror of heaven. I think we've got to maintain the tension. The psalmist says that Yahweh built his sanctuary like the heavens, like the earth that he established forever. For those able to interpret the symbols, in other words, there is this picture of what is taking place on Mount Zion is like a heavenly structure. And this is the way Philo and Josephus in the early uh, they're going to go through and talk about the temple almost in Neoplatonic. Uh, terms Um, I'm skipping so for ancient Israel the temple was we can talk about it was the center it was the navel of the universe you know the picture in Jubilees is uh, Noah knew that the garden of Eden was the holy of holies and the dwelling of the Lord and Mount Sinai was in the midst of the de- desert, and Mount Zion in the midst of the navel of the earth. We can find in uh, Ezekiel, and actually it's in Ezekiel and in Moses, that these two different ideas of the temple are being brought together. Uh, they're in Ezekiel, referenced as to Jerusalem as the center, the very navel of the earth. But of course, he also talks about the chariot, you know, the moving chariot of God. Um, They thought that the temple service, this is Barry, was sacramental. It guaranteed the stability of its symbolic referent, the real physical world. Its destruction would logically mean the real destruction of that world. And so they would return day and night to Mount Moriah. In a sense, that's true, right? 
if the sacrifices of the temple, if the sacrifice of Abraham is not fulfilled and completed in Christ, there is no hope for the world. This sacrifice then completes the purposes of humanity. Let me end with the words of Isaiah that St. Stephen quotes, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? So we have to put together, I think, the two things. The temple is microcosm, but also the the language of Hebrews that the temple that has been made has been made by the hand of God. First of all, it's a temple that has been made. It's one that is It is a created temple, but it's been made by God. What temple has been made by God? A body you have prepared for me. A temple you have made. It's both cosmic and I think it points to Christ. Uh, That was a kind of hard, I'm sorry, that was was a scattershot sort of thing. But uh, any questions before we, we read this section? Did I completely lose you on that? What we might do before we we read Hebrews, let's look at Psalms chapter 40. Um, And just the, the beginning of Psalms 40, which the writer of Hebrews is quoting. Somebody have Psalm 40. Just read... uh, uh, verse uh, five verses. Well, well, first five verses and then there's the quote, but we recognize that. Okay. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined me, he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put in, put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Happy are those who make the Lord their trust and who, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. And then is the quotation from... You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than they can be counted. And then sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burn, uh, you were talking about your the, the thing you do at the, uh, what is the celebration in Mexico? You Sieta. Did? Sieta, and they pierce your ears. There it is. You've got, you got the biblical justification for it. Uh, so the, the picture that I, he turned to me and heard, he lifted me out of the slimy pit. Uh, where do you think that is? Out of the mud and mire. I think it's death, isn't it? That he's taken me, he's rescued me from death. Uh, and he put me, he set me on a firm place, on a rock. Uh, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to God. 
I think that we have to have in mind as we read Hebrews chapter 10. Let's just go through it real quickly. Uh, again, Caitlin, can you read the first verse? I caught you off. Sorry. Uh, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. So he's going to talk about perfection. Perfection is two things, to enter into the Holy of Holies and that the sacrifice is not repeated. We've said that the way that you enter into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, is you're cleansed. What are you cleansed from? You're cleansed from death, sin and death, right? And that's the picture here that we just read in Psalms. What is it that he's lifted up? He's rescued from death. I think, you know, certainly the idea is that the death of Christ, he's passed through death. And maybe it's, we can even talk about that it's at that point that the ministry of Christ is completed, right? It is finished, he says. What's finished? Well, if we take John in the beginning and the crucifixion, it is finished. Those are the first and final words of the seven days of creation, the recreation that has commenced with Christ has been completed on the cross. So the, uh, the resurrection, then, I, you know, even in John, he will speak in the, uh, high, you know, the, the, the part, parting discourse. He'll say, I have uh, uh, conquered the world. I've, you know, I've overcome the world. And he talks about his own death and resurrection, but he talks about it as if he's already completed it. I think we can, that we can put all this together in the same way. That on the cross, we do not talk about the cross of Christ apart from the resurrection and the ascension. So that when we say the cross, we include the resurrection. It's already there, even in Christ before the, the death of Christ. Uh, and so I think it, it is, we can focus on the passage through death or the moment of the cross as the time of kenotic, you know, full pouring out of love. But that is in, we are enabled to participate in that resurrection life only because he is raised, only because he is the high priest. He does not accomplish his high, high priestly ministry apart from his resurrection. But what he's calling us to is also to take up our cross. All right. Uh, and so uh, the shadow in the, you know, the shadow is the temporal shadow. A shadow is a temporal thing. That it's not a, uh, a cosmic, you know, architectural copy. But temporally we've entered into the, the final ages here. And then uh, Jake... Do you have verse 2? Yeah. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. Uh, the idea that, uh, that he's talking about being cleansed, how are you truly cleansed? Well, you're truly cleansed when you're cleansed of death. You're cleansed of sin and death. Yeah, those were the choice seats right there. I, I did a big deal, and I, I don't, uh, you know, uh, is, I think we can talk about guilt. 
in, in Scripture. But guilt is itself connected in this section uh, to the idea of cleansing through indestructible life. What I'm saying is that guilt and shame are always interconnected. Shame is always connected to death. I won't go down that path. Uh, Dave, you want to read the next one? But in these (coughs) sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Go ahead with verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He has talked about the blood of bulls and goats as, you know, they. Uh, it's not that they're completely inefficacious, but of course they do not accomplish what they're aimed at doing. Because the priests then die and there's one replace, priest replaced by another. Uh, and we've talked about the blood. What is the blood? There is a two-part system. The, the bulls and goats are slaughtered, but the slaughter does not accomplish the end point. They take the blood and they put it on the elements of the temple. You know, they manipulate the blood and it is offered then. And the point we've made is that it is representative. Blood is representative of life, not death. Blood is representative of life dedicated to God. I think that is non-controversial among people who are doing this now. Maybe maybe it's controversial somewhere else. Okay, and so we come to the quotation here, and uh, let's read the the quotation, uh, Evan, one more time. Okay. Um. <clears throat> Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. What does he desire? To do his will. To do his will, obedience. And in this, we've already talked about this in chapter 2, but it'll come up here again. We'll talk about it next week in chapter 10. Uh, that the idea that uh, he was obedient and God heard his prayers, remember, and rescued him. How did God rescue him? Well, we just read that in Psalm 40, which this verse is referencing. He rescued him by delivering him from death that the resurrection is the rescue, but the passage through death was a necessary part of the rescue. In other words, nothing happens apart from the death of Christ, but we can't say that everything is contained there in the death of Christ. So the sacrifices, I think we have missed the point that we imagine they are simply pointing to death, and that is a sacrilege. I mean, just if we understand the temple correctly, because the sacrifices, if they go back to Abraham and Isaac, what God wanted from Abraham was a child dedicated to God. 
was a person dedicated to God. Uh, and that's what Isaac represents. And Isaac, of course, is a type of Christ. Do you know what Isaac means? Did we do this? Laughing? Yeah, he who laughs. It's a big joke. The whole thing's a big joke. <laughs> it's a joke in that Sarah fell down laughing, Abraham fell down laughing, because God breaks into the situation and, and makes it new. And that's funny. And that's why Jesus is called he who laughs. He breaks into the situation. He makes it new. And there is a new song. There is joy. Jesus? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is he called he who laughs too? Well, he is the type. Isaac is a type of Christ. So I think we could say that the true fulfillment of the joke. <laughs> that's all the joke. <laughs> What I mean by joke is what Freud meant. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Is you think of you're on a kind of flat plane and then somebody breaks into it and says, It's unexpected. An unexpected thing. It's from somewhere we don't, you know, we didn't look at it from that perspective. Irony. Not irony, but. Uh, uh, a, 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 a joke uh, what's a joke you know somebody tell a joke uh, <laughs> yeah yeah the, there's a joke you know that yeah, the guy wants to receive a telegram and the telegram ends up being about your sister's dead a singing telegram. Yes, the singing telegram. Wow. That's the person to get That's a kind of reverse joke, you know. That's a sad joke. Yeah, it's like an anti-joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the little boy drop his apple. What is it? The little boy dropped his apple and what? No, nothing. He said, why, they're, really, they're really bad jokes. They're more good. The opposite. It's um, a sad message, but you're doing it was, in a happy way. It illustrates your point. So a joke is basically just anything unexpected that causes um, that type of, of reaction. Yeah. And, and, and I'm saying joke, I mean, that's obviously the wrong language here. But in a sense, I think we lose sometimes uh, the joy. And it's talked about in the song that there's joy and happiness uh, in the deliverance that God brings. Uh, And I think it really is connected. I think that it really is, uh, you know, this was, uh, you know, the the last chapter, the laughing Bart in who was it that wrote on the Beyond Fundamentalism, uh, that I think that theology done rightly is really funny in a joyous sort of way. It breaks into things. It sees things and it breaks them open in a, in a very, in, in, and we get a different perspective. Is that too bizarre? That's a nice one. I don't know if you're sincere or not. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> Irony, yes. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. 
Well, I think we often look at, you know, we think, uh, oh, Sarah and uh, she doubted, and her laughter was doubt. But I don't think they would have memorialized Isaac, the, you know, memorialized the laughter in the name uh, if it hadn't been that the laughter was partly joyous. And Abraham laughed, too. Abraham fell down laughing, too. We often forget that. So here is the body prepared. You know, this is what the writer's going to do in the next, is it the next chapter? That he's going to start talking about God breaking in through resurrection. I mean, that's what he's always, that's what the whole thing is about. There's the joke. You know, the, 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 it's the opposite of your sister Rose is dead. Uh, because we know about the death, but now... Uh, she's been raised again. I don't know. Somewhere, somewhere. All right. I, uh, any questions on the? We just did a small I section. I have a quick clarifying question. So, okay. Um, you said you know, like we make the mistake of imagining that the sacrifices simply point to death. Um, so the what we're aiming at is is to look at the sacrifices as pointing to like deliverance or passage through death? Is that what we yes. said? Okay. Yes. Jesus died, but that ain't the end of the story. He died to defeat death. He died to overcome evil. He died, uh, in other words, his death is the means of defeating death. Uh, when I am lifted up, you know, I'm going to cast the prince of this world out. I'll draw all men unto myself. And so, once we get that, we get, you know, I think this is a, this is a, a new under, a, not a new understanding, but this the part of understanding the microcosmos of the temple is a, a, a kind of going back and a revisionist understanding. I'm afraid that. Uh, in a lot of Protestant theology and Lutheran theology that we focused, and maybe in Latin theology, uh, I mean Roman Catholicism, it's not exclusively there, but in Protestantism, it's almost exclu an exclusive focus on the death of Christ. I think it makes sense what what you're saying when you talk about the temple and all the sacrifices and everything about the temple was a cleansing of death. So then for us to emphasize death in any way to make it like a solution in the death of Christ, it just, yeah, it just goes against everything that, you know, the temple is supposed to be helping us understand, yeah. <laughs> you know, what happened. It just is like, it's the very opposite. So whenever I now understand, you know, that all of these rituals were a cleansing of death and a giving, like, of, of life, you know, then, yeah, it just kind of flips the emphasis. And that's what, you know, you're always saying is, like, the problem is death. And we don't, you know, the worst thing you can do is to just completely flip that and all you have to do is just kind of change a little bit change what you're saying or your emphasis a little bit and all of a sudden death is good and then it's like 
the devil is like, exactly. <laughs> you know, I got him. And yeah, like, yeah. That's not, you know. There's a, de a very definite genealogy to this. Luther talks about God died on the cross. The way Luther meant it, I, I, I can agree with him. What he meant was that we don't separate out you know, the divinity. But then um, Hegel comes along and said, yeah, God died on the cross. What Hegel meant by that was that God through dying on, and he means God, he means all of God, uh, that uh, God becomes fully divine historically through a process, and he takes death up to him, into himself. Then Friedrich Nietzsche comes along and said, yeah, God died. Period. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Uh, that there is the genealogy of, of nihilism, of atheism, in a misdirected Protestant theology. I think as Protestants, we're basically practicing atheists. And I think that we're practicing atheists because our theology is so bad. And I should, that's too big, that's too big, you know. Uh, but I think, what could we say that of the signs of a nihilistic evil theology would be that people do evil things? Or are there good evil Christians? I think you got to answer there's probably not evil Christians. I'm, I'm sorry. If people do evil, they may be practicing a religion other than Christianity. I don't know what religion to call it, but I think it is characterized by penal substitution. It's characterized by a departure from living out a, a life in imitation of Christ. It's a departure from a Christian ethic. It's a... Uh, it's a removal from the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon, you know. So. It's so. All right. Any other comments, questions? Yeah, I got one. Okay. So when we were reading the Psalm 40 verse, where in Hebrews it says, A body hath prepared for me. In the psalm, uh, the I guess it'd be the Masoretic text is what they're translating these from. It's, you've pierced my ears. Uh, loose comment and then a question. That sounds like it's slavery stuff because they would pierce the ears of a slave when the slave would want to stay with the master for the rest of their time. Um, if then that's a slavery thing, how does that connect with a temple and to the point where a Septuagint translators could say this is a body I've prepared for me and then how does this type of imagery connect with what we're seeing in the text in Hebrews I know it's kind of complicated yeah I'm a little I'm a little hesitant to venture into this territory because I I, uh, I would be it would be a kind of stab in the dark um, I, I I think the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Septuagint 
uh, and whether the Masoretic, whether the text, you know, whether we should go back and look at the Masoretic text. I'd have to go back and see what the connection is. Uh, I mean, of course, the image of somebody having their, the, the slave having their ear pierced was that it was a permanent servitude. It was a total servitude. So I suppose, but I'm guessing there, um, you know, that there may be the idea that uh, here is one, who, you know, as Jesus himself will say, uh, that he's the servant of all. But whether, whether you could make a t- case on that text, I would have to look at it. But that's a shot at it.